And Father, as we come to your word, we come as people who are hungry and who can only be fed by your word. In the words of Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so we come to your word reverently, remembering that your word is inspired, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, and that it is sufficient for every aspect of our lives. And so we pray that you would use your word today to strengthen us, to encourage us, to do your work in us, and that you would glorify Christ through the study of your word. Lord, we also pray for our children who are here today, and we pray for their salvation. We pray that seeds would be planted, and that in due time, Lord, that they would savingly believe. We thank you for our children, and we ask, uh, we ask your blessing upon them, uh, that you would save them in, in your time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to uh, John chapter 9. We're going to be in John chapter 9 today, looking at verses 13 to 23. You'll see that the title of our sermon today is kind of weird. Blessed Persecution. We don't think of it that way, do we? That's like the opposite of usually how we view persecution. But do you remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes? If you're persecuted for his sake, you're blessed. That's something that's difficult for us to take to heart, but it's something that we must take to heart, especially in a day and age like this where there's so much darkness in the culture around us and where the persecution of Christians, it's, I understand it's not what it is in other countries yet. Christians aren't being killed here, but we do have difficulties that we're facing here in America as Christians specifically that we haven't had before. So there is a sense in which there is persecution here in America unlike which we've seen before. So today we're going to be looking at a passage in which there is some persecution. John chapter 9 verses 13 to 23. You know as we've seen so many times in our study of John's gospel testimony The reason that John wrote this book is in order that the reader, that's you and me, that the reader might believe in Jesus Christ and thereby receive eternal life in him. John explicitly tells us that that's why he wrote this when we get to the end of the book. And yet, while it's a book that testifies of the glory and the success of the gospel, it's also a book that testifies of the horrible reality and the horrible nature of of unbelief. That's to say, John doesn't just tell us some stories of people, of some people who believed. He also tells us the stories of many who would not believe, even when they had every reason in the world to believe, staring them point blank in the face. So we see grace in this book. We see so much grace in this book, but we also see depravity. See, the depravity is what accentuates the grace. If we understand depravity, we really see the beauty of grace. And that's one of the reasons that John's gospel is a favorite of so many 
because there's so much grace. But when you understand it against the backdrop of human depravity, it's so much more beautiful. You know, as, as I consider how many times I've seen this phenomenon happen where somebody has every reason to believe, staring them right point blank in the face. When I consider how many times I've seen that happen, I've, I've, I'm reminded of the many, many, many conversations I've had with skeptics and atheists who said that they would believe if only, right, if only they could see Jesus for themselves, if only uh, they could see Jesus perform a miracle for themselves with their own eyes. And when we consider the nature of unbelief, as revealed in this book, when we consider the depths of depravity behind unbelief as revealed in this book and the way that John has shown us both the reality and the nature of it, we know, friends, we know, don't we, that seeing a miracle won't change anyone's mind. Seeing a miracle won't change anybody's mind. If you think back to John chapter 6, we saw the feeding of 5,000 families, which means there are roughly 20,000 people there. And Jesus feeds them more than enough. And yet, how many among those people believed? Not even one. Not even one. You want to talk about the darkness of depravity. 20,000 people see this spectacular miracle, and not one is convinced that they need to be worshiping Jesus the way that he deserves to be worshiped. They don't believe in him. Speaking of miracles, we've just seen Jesus perform the sixth sign, the sixth miracle, major miracle, of John's gospel testimony, and that was the healing of this man who was, uh, who was blind from birth. So Jesus approached him, he spat on the ground, made clay with the dirt, and put the clay on the man's eyes, and he instructed the man to go to the pool of Siloam and, and wash the clay off of his eyes. And upon obeying Jesus, the man's eyes were opened, uh, and he was able to see for the first time. And ironically, if you remember, what was the response of his neighbors upon seeing this miracle? They couldn't believe their eyes. Despite what they could clearly see, they were so insistent on continuing in their unbelief, they tried to convince themselves that this wasn't even the same guy, that it must have been somebody else, somebody who, who looked like that blind beggar, but couldn't have been that blind beggar. But as he continued to insist that it was him, they finally asked him, okay, how did this happen then? If you're the guy, how did this happen? You know, they asked him, how then were your eyes opened? And he told them, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. They followed up by asking him in verse 12, where is he? And he responded, oh, I, I don't know. Now what's interesting is what follows immediately after this part of the conversation. Why do you suppose they wanted to know where Jesus was? As we'll see in our passage today, as we continue studying John chapter 9, the answer is not what it should have been. Why should they have been asking where Jesus was? So they could go and worship him, right? So, so they could go and, and, and fall at his feet and worship him. Uh, this was clearly their Messiah. If they knew what the Old Testament scripture said, they would have known this is the Messiah. But instead, it seems that they are more intent on interrogating him, interrogating Jesus about what he had done. See, this man had been blind all his life, but he sees now. 
even so much better than these neighbors. They're the ones who have been blind. Not physically blind. No, they're, they're spiritually blind. They've got truth staring them point blank in the face, and they don't believe. They're lost in the darkness. They hate the light. And so this leads to the man being brought before the Pharisees for a hearing in the passage that we'll be looking at. He's going to be put on trial for his faith. He's going to be persecuted. But what we'll see today is that his persecution is actually a deep, rich blessing because it forces him to consider who Jesus is and to grow in his knowledge and understanding of Jesus. So the point of our passage today is this. The point of our passage is that God uses persecution to bless us and to strengthen our faith. I mean, it's a principle that we could demonstrate with so many passages of Scripture, right? Uh, Think about what we just read in Daniel chapter 3. Both in the Old and the New Testament, they, they, they affirm the same thing, that God's power is demonstrated in this way, in that God uses persecution, God uses hardships, God uses troubles that we face to bless His people and to strengthen our faith. So astonishingly, the first thing that the neighbors of this man do when they're confronted with the fact that this man has been healed something that only God could do, something that should have caused them to rejoice and and to worship and praise God, their immediate response instead is to throw the man into the fire, so to speak, to throw him under the bus. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. It says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Now, something that we need to understand from the outset here is that the Pharisees were this, they were a sect, right? They were a politically charged separatist sect within Judaism. Have you ever noticed that you don't read anything about the Pharisees anywhere in the Old Testament? It's because they really only existed during the height of the Roman occupation of Israel from very early on in the second century BC to 70 AD at the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. They didn't operate really outside of those years. And when they did operate, when, when they were a, a powerful sect, they were really operating under the authority of the Roman Empire more than they were operating under the authority of God. But in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 17 and 18, we read this. The men who have a dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly. Now, that's what seems to be going on here. As these neighbors, when they are told that this man is healed by the man and they don't, that he doesn't know where Jesus is, their response is to bring him to the Pharisees. It, it seems that they are trying to settle a dispute, which is kind of weird. Uh, because what, what is there to dispute here? What is there to, to argue about? But let's, let's start with this. Why did they bring this man before the Pharisees? Because the Pharisees weren't the only um, priests and, and uh, religious leaders of the time. Why not bring him before the regular temple priests? 
and maybe just as interesting, perhaps confusing, is to ask exactly what is this man, this formerly blind man, what is he being accused of? What are the charges? What has he done wrong? Now, it's possible that they think he's bearing false witness. Um, we don't know, but, but even if that were the case, bringing the man before this separatist sect uh, was not what God had instructed. The Pharisees weren't even around when the law of Moses was given. So biblically, there's no case in which there, there could be a dispute here between two parties. And the neighbors bring the man before the group that has all this hostility with Jesus, the Pharisees. Is it a coincidence that the people bring the man before the group that hates Jesus? I don't think so. Probably not. The neighbors are completely, this, this much is obvious, the neighbors are completely ignoring what God's word has to say about settling a dispute. Did God ever take back the instructions that he had given for settling a dispute? Was there ever a time when God said, you know what, I, I take it back. Uh, just call anything a dispute and settle it however works best for you. Did God ever do anything like that? Of course not. Of course not. Now, here's a principle that you're going to want to keep very fresh in your minds for our passage today, and it's this. If God gives us an instruction, if God gives us a command, that command stands until he specifically nullifies or replaces it. If God gives us an instruction or a command, that command stands until he specifically nullifies or replaces it. Now what's clear as we consider this much is that the power stru uh, structures in Jerusalem had changed at this point. They weren't what they were when the law had been given. And so not only did the power structures change, but we also see that the standards by which things are judged has changed. The scriptures are no longer the authority. The scriptures are no longer really held as the law of the land. Rather, they were replaced by the traditions of men. The traditions of men. And the traditions of men became the standard by which people would be judged and instructed. Now, these people who brought the formerly blind man before the Pharisees were obviously, when we consider all the evidence, they were biased. And they were very selective in terms of who they wanted to bring this before, to settle it for them. They're not bringing the man before the Pharisees to say, look at this. C can we praise the Lord for this? Look at this man who was healed. Now he can see. He was blind. We've, we've seen him all our lives. He's been blind for years and years and years, and he's been healed. Let's praise the Lord. That's not why they bring him to the Pharisees. No, it seems like they very likely knew of the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees, and so they're throwing this man into the fire as a means of presenting increasing, incriminating evidence against Jesus. Because he had done this, John tells us, on the Sabbath of all days. Now that's definitely not a coincidence. But what we see here is that in the minds of these neighbors, this man, this man who's been healed, he's kind of stripped of his dignity with them. Instead of giving praise to God because, and rejoicing for the fact that he's been healed, instead he becomes a pawn in a political game. He becomes a means to an end, that end being 
Jesus being incriminated. One thing that's interesting to note that you wouldn't get from, from reading the Scriptures is that the general public overall actually loved the Pharisees. Would you have known that by reading the Bible? Of course not, because the biblical authors had a, a very different perspective of the Pharisees than the general public did. But uh, the first century historian Josephus tells us that the Pharisees were very well liked by the public. Now that actually shouldn't shock us or surprise us all that much uh, when we understand that the Pharisees are a representation of the world. The Pharisees are a representation of unregenerate man. The Pharisees are wicked, so is the world. And history reveals that the Pharisees fit right in with the world and that they were loved. They were very well liked by the public. And that only makes sense because the Pharisees, again, were a picture of unregenerate humanity. They were religious, but let's get this much out of the way. Everybody is religious. There's nobody who has no God. Everybody is religious. I mean, these days, nobody's even trying to hide it, right? Nobody's even trying to hide the fact that they are religious. Make no mistake about it. I mean, you can't miss it. Everybody in our day and age has their worship turned up to 11 in, their, in terms of the objects of their worship. I mean, this, this movement behind the riots and, and the, uh, the protests that's trying to destroy our country, they even had a what we believe section on their website, and that's something that you usually only find on a church website. But they actually took their what we believe page down when people started realizing that they had a long list of satanic doctrine and immoral goals, things that even unbelieving pagans were able to recognize as being evil and immoral. Now the world likes to think that Christians, people who want to obey God, are a picture of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are, are really, you know, they're, they're basically religious people. So if you're a religious person, you're a Pharisee. That's not the way it is. The Pharisees were not people who were devout in their faith to God. The Pharisees had no faith in Jesus Christ. They hated him. And thus, the Pharisees are a representation of unbelieving humanity. They're not a picture of Christians. They're a picture of religious people, for sure. But religious people who are opposed to Christianity. The person who takes the law of God seriously, therefore, is not a Pharisee. The person who tries to twist and change God's word in order to fit their own agenda, that's the Pharisee, because that's exactly what the Pharisees did. Somebody who's governed by their ideas and their traditions rather than by what God's word says. Now remember back in chapter 5, by the way, we already saw a conflict arise between Jesus and the Pharisees because of the Sabbath. Because Jesus healed the man, the crippled man who was by the pool of Bethesda also on the Sabbath. Uh, now that violated man's laws, but it certainly didn't break God's law. And Jesus made a, a compelling case, a, a, a thorough case against that accusation back in chapter 5. He, he showed us that in fact what he did honored God's law. And of course, the law that we're talking about is the fourth commandment from Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 10, where we read this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Now, how difficult is that to understand? What's the problem? The problem, the confusion arises with semantics and nuance. Some people started asking the question at some point, you know, what does it mean to work? And so the Pharisees, instead of consulting God's word to define that word, they came up with their own definition of what it means to work. And they had some really weird ideas that they would make into their traditions. We explored that more in depth back in our study of chapter 5. If you want to refresh your memory and go back to those sermons or, or review those notes, But the fact that Jesus, who never once sinned, healed on the Sabbath on multiple occasions, should tell us something. And in fact, it does. It doesn't tell us that the command to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy has been canceled, first of all. It's not that 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 commandment has been put aside, and so Jesus is healing. No, it hasn't been put aside. I fear that most Christians believe that the fourth commandment has been put aside, and I've heard some insanely ridiculous justifications for the idea that the fourth commandment has been put aside. But that simply is not the case. None of the Ten Commandments have ever been nullified or abrogated. Rather, if we see what Jesus did on the Sabbath, what we should see is that he sets an example for us for how to keep the Sabbath. First of all, he goes to the temple to, to serve and to, and to worship. Then he performs works of mercy and or necessity. Hasn't Jesus demonstrated the perfect example of keeping the Sabbath for us? He has. In his commentary on John's Gospel, J.C. Ryle writes this. He writes, quote, We must not for a moment suppose that the Sabbath is no longer binding on Christians and that they have nothing to do with the fourth commandment. This is a great mistake and the root of great evil. Not one of the Ten Commandments has ever been repealed or put aside. Our Lord never meant the Sabbath to become a day of pleasure or a day of business or a day of traveling and idle dissipation. He meant it to be kept holy as long as the world stands." End quote. And elsewhere he writes this, quote, Whether we know it or not, our Sabbath is one of our richest possessions. It is good for our bodies, minds, and souls. Of it, the famous words may be truly used that it is, quote, the cheap defense of a nation. End quote. Now we know that the Pharisees didn't have an understanding of the Sabbath at all. They didn't understand the purpose of the Sabbath at all. They thought that, the, that man was made for the Sabbath, but Jesus teaches that the Sabbath was made for man. And we should know that the, the Pharisees did not keep the Sabbath. They adopted their own ideas of what they should do on the Sabbath. Friends, let us not do the same. Let us not do the same. Instead, let's strive to follow the example that's been set by Jesus. So the Pharisees begin to interrogate the man. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. 
Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So the Pharisees begin this this cross-examination, this inquisition, by asking the man for the facts. Just tell us what happened. And he responds by telling them very plainly exactly what happened. And it's interesting to see that as he tells them what happened, they're actually divided in terms of their verdict, in terms of what they think about it. Now, one of the things that we need to see here, this is kind of an interesting way of looking at it, is that there are two syllogisms at play here, two syllogisms being used here. A syllogism is an argument with a logical form, right? For example, uh, you might say all humans breathe. Uh, Caroline is a human, therefore uh, Caroline must breathe. Now, looking at those premises, uh, it's true that all humans breathe, and if it's true, and if it's true that she's a human being, uh, again, those are premises, then the conclusion must follow. If the premises are true, the conclusion is true. The way to disprove the conclusion is to disprove at least one of the two premises. Now, in this case, the first syllogism is this. The first argument is this. All people keep, all people from God keep the Sabbath. That's the first premise. Jesus doesn't keep the Sabbath. There's your second premise. The conclusion is, therefore, Jesus is not of God. All people from God keep the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't keep the Sabbath. Therefore, Jesus is not of God. But others disagree, and they come up with their own syllogism. And it goes something like this. It goes, sinners cannot perform signs and wonders. Jesus has performed signs and wonders. Therefore, the conclusion, Jesus must not be a sinner. Now, the first syllogism is obviously the one that's mistaken. And we prove that by demonstrating that one of the premises is mistaken. All people from God keep the Sabbath. We're commanded to, so we at least should, right? That premise might not be entirely accurate, but it should be, at least in theory. But the second premise is the one that's demonstrably mistaken. The second premise of that first syllogism is that Jesus does not keep the Sabbath. Oh, yes, he did. In fact, he kept it perfectly. So that argument is faulty because one of the premises is demonstrably false. And the result is division between the Pharisees. Now, to be fair to the Pharisees, what they've done this far, thus far isn't necessarily wrong. Uh, inquiring of the man uh, what happened, that's okay. That's a good thing to do, right? That's actually a very good thing to do. There's nothing wrong with stopping and asking and inquiring about what happened because both the Old Testament and the New Testament encourage us to exercise discernment when it comes to miracles or spiritual teachings because both the Old Testament and the New Testament acknowledge that there are both good and evil powers at play in the world. So, Exercising discernment is necessity. Is, is, is a necessity. It's necessary to do, to determine truth from error. But they quickly depart from the biblical instructions for discerning 
what's truly happened, and they start applying unbiblical tests to the situation. Look at verse 17 with me. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. It's interesting to see that they want to know. It's interesting and unbiblical to see that they want to know what he thinks of Jesus. But at the same time, we should understand that that question is just, it's a non sequitur. It doesn't matter. It holds no weight or importance. What does that have to do with the fact that he's been healed? Absolutely nothing at all. If the Pharisees wanted to determine whether Jesus has done something that was or wasn't permissible, what should they have done? They should have judged Jesus' actions and teachings on the basis of the standards that are clearly laid out in Scripture. We find those standards for, for uh, inquisitions like this stated very plainly in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. We read this. If a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul. So essentially what we see in in that passage is that if somebody does something miraculous, what are we supposed to do? The principle is simply this. Ask yourself, did that sign or wonder align with what God's word says? Did that sign or wonder draw you to the God of Scripture? Or did it draw you to chase after other gods? And how would you judge that? How would you answer that? By looking at the teachings of the one who does the sign or wonder and asking, how do his teachings line up with what the Bible says? Now, if they had done that with Jesus, he would have been exonerated. He would have been declared innocent. But the Pharisees aren't interested in what the Scriptures say. They're interested in what their traditions dictate, and they're interested in maintaining their positions of power. Now, given that these are the instructions that God has given to determine whether a prophet is or isn't from God, it's interesting that the man responds to their question by telling them that he thinks that Jesus is a prophet. Now, I want you to see the significance of that. Is Jesus a prophet? Yes. Yes, he is. He is our prophet, priest, and king. But what had the formerly blind man said about Jesus earlier. Look up, look back up at verse 11. When he's asked by his neighbors in verse 10, how then were your eyes open? He says, the man who is called Jesus healed me. The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. He referred to Jesus as simply the man who is called Jesus back in verse 11. 
So what we see as he's calling Jesus a prophet here, what we see is that as he's questioned by the Pharisees, he's thinking more deeply about what has happened, and he's at least realized at this point that Jesus is not just an ordinary man, but he must have been sent from God. He's referred, uh, he went from referring to him as, as the man who is called Jesus to prophet. And of course, a prophet is somebody who speaks and acts on God's behalf, set apart from other men. Now, look down at verse 33 of our text. Chapter 9, verse 33. There he says this of Jesus. He says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's speaking of Jesus. So he's sure that Jesus is from God. Now look down at verse 38. In verse 38, he refers to Jesus as Lord. Do you see the progression? How did he reach that conclusion? The short answer is this, by having his faith put to the fire. See, God uses persecution to bless his people and to strengthen our faith. And I understand that when you're in the heat of the moment, that that's very difficult to understand. But we should know, we should understand from the outset that whatever man intends for evil toward God's children, God uses for good. Every time. No exceptions. That's why James says, James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Because trials have a way of drawing us closer to God. Trials have a way of causing us to reflect more deeply on God's promises, more deeply on who God is. And as we do that, our understanding is increased and our faith is grown and strengthened. But again, really, this this man's opinion of, of who Jesus is what this man thinks about it, should be irrelevant to this inquisition. It, 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 shouldn't, it shouldn't have even been an issue. If they're trying to get to the bottom of this miracle, why should this man's opinion of Jesus matter at all? The fact of the matter is that they are less interested in Jesus at this point, and they've actually turned the heat not on Jesus, they've turned the heat on this man, this formerly blind man. So instead of believing, based on the evidence that is clearly presented before them, instead of believing, and instead of rejoicing, and instead of praising God that this man's been healed, the Pharisees show the absolute persistence of unbelief and the coldness of their hearts by refusing to believe that this man was blind in the first place. Well, how are you going to find out if this man was truly blind in the first place? You're going to go to his parents. And so that's what they do. They call his parents to come before them and give their testimony. Let's look at verses 18 to 23. The Jews, speaking of the, of the Pharisees here, the Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Or who who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, 
He was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. Now, we all know that there are basically two ways that you can be mistaken about something. First, you can believe something that's false. And secondly, you can refuse to believe something that's true. And the Pharisees are really guilty of both of those things here, aren't they? And it's because of their insistence on not believing. It's because of the coldness of their hearts, the hardness of their hearts. The evidence is right there before their eyes. And they still refuse to believe that they're coming up with any, other, any reason to justify disbelief. See, these are people who are not seeking truth. They're seeking vindication. Who do they represent? The world. They don't want to believe. They're trying to find a way around it. They're trying to weasel their way around it. They're seeking to justify their hatred of Jesus. And so in their minds, they've got to do something. They've got to do anything to discredit the evidence by by any means possible. But their effort to discredit or, or at least weaken the man's testimony, it only serves to strengthen it. A careful reading of of verse 18 tells us that they they finally had to concede that the man was born blind after all, after they questioned the man's parents. But we shouldn't miss the fear that the parents have as they answer to the Pharisees, uh, you know, as quickly as they can. They just want to get out of there. They don't want anything to do with this, really. But, But they're asked three questions. Number one, is this your son? Number two, was he born blind? And number three, how does he now see? as if they would know. As far as we know, they they haven't even seen him since he's been healed. So so they answer the the first two questions, is this your son and was he born blind? They answer those questions very straightforwardly and and with ease. But as they're faced with the third question, John tells us that they are afraid. They're basically saying, "We, we don't know how he's able to see. We don't know who healed him, allowing him to see. We don't know, but but quit asking us, ask him. Nice parents, right? They're just trying to get out of there. They're afraid of the Pharisees. They'd rather sacrifice their child, their son, than face the Pharisees. And their fear of the Pharisees is what prevents them from doing what they should have done, what you would think that they would do. If if your son uh, is healed of being blind after who knows how many years, and you learn about it right there, do you not rejoice? No, instead they're being controlled by fear. The fear of the Pharisees is what prevents them from praising God and standing by their son. Instead, they just throw him right back into the fire. Why do they fear the Pharisees? John tells us. It's because the Pharisees had already decided that anyone who confesses that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, was not allowed in the synagogue anymore. So so basically, the penalty for doing that, the penalty for confessing faith in Christ, was excommunication. You're out of here for good. I mean, that meant basically being treated like a Gentile, being treated like a tax collector, being treated like a leper. It meant that no Jew was even to come close to that person any longer. So it didn't just have repercussions for their religious life. It also had repercussions for every aspect of life. Getting cast out of the synagogue also meant that when you die, there would be no funeral for you. Nobody would mourn for you. So it meant being an outcast, 
being a complete outcast. It meant being cut off from everything that you might have thought is important in life. Now, I don't know about you, but it kind of strikes me as odd that the only person who seems to have experienced any joy whatsoever over this man's healing is the man himself. He's the only one who even seems to see the glory of God in this healing. Even his parents express no joy, no relief, no praise for his healing. Nobody has shown even the slightest bit of concern for this man as an individual. And nobody has even celebrated, much less acknowledged, the fact that a miracle has taken place. See, what this formerly blind man experienced, friends, it's really not all that different from what so many people experience today when they profess faith in Christ, when they're brought to faith in Christ. In the words of A.W. Pink, quote, the ones who will treat worse the young believer are not open infidels and atheists, but those who are loudest in their religious professions. End quote. Now, given that we've already seen that everybody is religious, really, it's the most religious people, but not the people who are the true church, who are the hardest for the young believer. In our age, the greatest threats to the faith of a young believer aren't usually outside of the walls of the church. Uh, usually, they're, they're more frequently inside the church. There are so many in our day and age who would claim to be a Christian. And yet, if you were to examine their lives, if you were to examine what they really believe about Jesus, what they really believe about God, what they really believe about the Bible, if you examine their lives the things that they're passionate about, what you'll find is that they thoroughly reject the authority of God's word. They're religious, all right, but they have no right to claim that they're a Christian because they reject the authority of God's word. And so they're essentially no different from the world around them. And by the way, go on to social media and you'll understand what I'm talking about because this describes about nine out of every 10 people who respond on social media to posts by you know, Christian publications and blogs. And I suppose that that shouldn't be surprising. I mean, if you've ever seen the books that are the top sellers that, and, and put on prominent display as soon as you walk into a Christian bookstore, you understand that most people who claim to be Christians, they need a lot of work. The question is, how can we avoid becoming like that ourselves? How can we avoid becoming so cold, so heartless like the Pharisees, like, like the religious people who, whose life and doctrine aren't Christian? How do we avoid becoming like that ourselves? And the answer is simply this, by testing everything against God's word and by being willing to be proven wrong by God's word. Has God's word ever corrected you? There shouldn't be anybody who says no, right? Have you ever held a certain belief for a prolonged period of time only for God's word to repeatedly confront that belief? Again, the, the answer should be yes. Even for mature Christians, yes. A resounding yes. And the only way that this happens is if when we come to the biblical text, we are viewing it as authoritative over us. If we are willing to see it that way, and therefore being willing to submit ourselves to God's word, 
regardless of how it might make us feel at the time. The easiest and the surest way to do that is to submit ourselves fully to the two greatest commandments. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Where do all these man-made rules and regulations that the Pharisees have ultimately come from? Ultimately, they come from a love of self. Love of self above all. I mean, isn't it interesting, by the way, that our culture is now saying uh, that we need more of that. We need more self-love. No, you don't. You need less. You need way less. We all need way, way less. Love of self is actually the problem in our world. It is not the cure. Love of self is why we are where we are. Love of self is what led to the fall. Love of self is the poison that this world will one day be rid of when Christ returns and the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in. Love of self is the problem. Love of self is the problem. It's not the solution. The call to follow Jesus is not a call to love yourself. It's to deny yourself. It's to deny yourself. And that's why the Pharisees wouldn't believe in Jesus. They wouldn't deny themselves. They're proud. They, they have no interest in putting the desires of the flesh to death. Denying ourselves is contrary to every natural desire of the flesh, right? The Pharisees are no exception. The Pharisees did not want to be humble. They did not want to be humbled. It's just so much easier to be proud. It's easier to love yourself. That's what we do naturally. And so despite the fact that they're confronted with the truth that this man has been healed, because of the love that they have for themselves, the Pharisees dig their heels in stubbornly. Let me just underline that for you. Love of self is the problem, not the solution. But forget about the Pharisees for a second. Forget about their rejection of Jesus. Forget about their unbelief toward Jesus. What about you? What about you? Are you willing to deny yourself? Are you willing to let go of beliefs and traditions that don't align with God's word? How committed are you today, right now, to knowing and trusting what God himself says in his word? What are you more inclined to do with the truth that's revealed in God's word? Are you more inclined to twist it, as so many do? Or are you more inclined to say, I'll submit to it regardless of the fact that I don't like it necessarily and I don't understand it? Because you will come to like it. You'll come to love it. You'll come to understand it. And see, that's really the difference between the Pharisees and this man who was formerly blind. He's not twisting anything. He's not trying to justify anything. We're seeing him simply submit to the truth, even though it would prove to be very costly to him. He's going to be cast out of the synagogue. He's going to be excommunicated from all of his friends. He's going to be cut off even from his own family. But here's the thing. He knows the cost. He knows what it's going to cost him. And he stands strong despite the severity of the consequences he's facing. But here's the beautiful thing, and I want to make sure that you see this. 
He's going to become a social outcast, but God's been preparing him for that his whole life. He's always been a social outcast. God has been preparing him for that his entire life. But we must also see this man's conviction and his composure in the midst of the fire that he's been thrown into. What explains that? What explains his composure and his his conviction? Only the grace of God. Only the grace of God. God's grace prepared him. God's grace strengthened him for this difficult hour of his life. And you can know, brothers and sisters, that God's grace will do the same for you when you face persecution and when you encounter various trials. See, the blessing of hardships and persecution The blessing is that it doesn't cause us to be separated from God. Rather, it forces us to draw near to God. It forces us to draw nearer to Him than a comfortable afternoon on the couch. It forces us to draw nearer to Him than the approval of man does. And so our faith, when when our faith is thrown into the fire, our faith is strengthened rather than weakened when we face times of trouble. And in this man's case, we can see his knowledge and his understanding of Jesus increase. We can tangibly see it. As his troubles increase, his understanding and his knowledge of Jesus also increases. And friends, I want you to know today that that is what God wants for you. He wants your understanding of Jesus to grow. He wants your knowledge of Jesus Christ to grow. And there is nothing that he will hold back from you in order to accomplish those purposes. Because there's no greater good. There's no greater good that could ever be given to you. What we see in this man is that finding our greatest hope in Jesus Christ is actually a shield against fear. He's our strength. He's our refuge in times of trouble. He's not shaken when even his parents refuse to stand by him. He's not intimidated by the ridiculous inquisition of the Pharisees. He doesn't care if his neighbors don't believe him. Why not? Because what mattered to this man is this. He had Jesus. And he had experienced the saving power of Jesus. And that's exactly what should matter to you and me too in times of trouble, friends. And trouble has a way of revealing to us what really matters to us most. And so, in light of that truth, what a blessed thing persecution is in the hands of a God who loves us and will hold nothing back from conforming us to the image of Christ. Friends, if you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. You have absolutely nothing. You might have lots of friends. You might have a great job. You might have a nice house. You might have a really souped-up car. You might have... Keep going, you know, whatever. But what can any of those things do for you when you stand before God in judgment one day? As we all must. Now those things aren't necessarily bad things. But if they matter to you more than anything else, what are you going to do when you lose them? And lose them you will. 
If Jesus, on the other hand, if Jesus matters more to you than anything else in this life, not only will he open your eyes and bring you into the light, but he will never, ever leave or forsake you. And he will cause every circumstance in your life, including, or or maybe especially, persecution and times of trouble, to ultimately work for your greatest possible good. And for his glory. Let's pray. Our most blessed Heavenly Father, we thank you for the the many things that we gain from studying your word the assurance, the confidence, the grace. And we thank you for the testimony of this blind man. The courage that he showed when his faith was thrown into the fire. Thank you for his resolve. Thank you for the steadfastness of his faith and of your faithfulness to him. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us the same resolve, the same conviction that he had to bear testimony to the saving power of Christ in our lives. We pray that the world, the unbelieving world around us, would notice that there would be something different about us. We confess to you that we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need your work in our lives in order to make us more like Jesus. And we thank you and we praise you that you hold nothing back to that end. So teach us to be more like Jesus. And we ask you to use any means necessary to accomplish that that great and blessed purpose for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.